From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. I don't think we owe everyone every piece of information about our lives. In fact, I think it's really important to have parts of ourselves that are just for ourselves or just for a treasured circle of intimates. I think it's important to have things that you keep for yourself, but I think it's also, it's equally important to understand why you are or aren't sharing something. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Chris Stedman. He's an activist and community organizer who's written for The Guardian, The Atlantic, Pitchfork, BuzzFeed, and Vice. He's appeared on CNN, MSNBC, and PBS. He was the founding executive director of the Yale Humanist Community and is now a fellow of Augsburg University in Minneapolis, Minnesota. His first book was Faithiest, How an Atheist Found Common Ground with the Religious. Today we're talking about his recent book, IRL, Finding Realness, Meaning, and Belonging in Our Digital Lives. Longtime listeners will remember that we interviewed Chris about Faithiest on an earlier season. Chris Stedman, welcome to Things Not Seen. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's so fun to come back on the show. Well, for those that have heard your earlier interview, they'll know a little bit about your background. And the fact that you wrote a book called Faithiest might begin to indicate for some new listeners <laughs> kind of where you're coming from. But in order to introduce everybody and remind them about your approach and your biography, there's a moment in your book IRL that I want to start our conversation with. You're at a conference and you decide that you and a friend want to go in and you're going to get a tarot card reading. And I'd like for you to explain to my audience why that's not a normal place for Chris Stedman to show up? <laughs> That's such a funny question. So I was in Ohio, as I write in IRL, I was in Ohio to speak at an atheist conference, which, you know, may help listeners understand why it, it may be a little strange that I went to get my tarot cards read. Because yeah, for the better part of the last decade, I have been what, and I love to say this, this phrase, but I've been a professional atheist. <laughs> so my job has related to being an atheist. Though I didn't grow up religious, I became religious as an adolescent because I was trying to understand what it means to be human in a world where we are so often so cruel and inhumane to one another. And, and so I had all of these questions about about justice, about what my responsibility was to an unjust world. And when I was invited to an after-school youth group that met at a non-denominational Christian church by some acquaintances from school, I suddenly found people who were equally concerned with the, the kinds of questions that I was wrestling with. And so I felt like, you know, I had found my people. I had found the people who, who shared my concerns. Eventually, you know, as I sort of continued to make my way through religion, and this is, you know, Faithiest sort of tells the story of, of this journey for me. But eventually, I came out on the other side of that process, realizing that I had become a Christian, not because of the theological claims of Christianity, but because I was looking for a space to find a sense of belonging and to explore these big questions in life. And eventually I sort of came out on the other side realizing that I I'm, wasn't religious, but that didn't mean that the questions didn't still matter to me. And I have continued throughout the course of my life to wrestle with those questions. And eventually I became a humanist chaplain. So somebody who works to support people who fall outside of religious categories, but are still wrestling with these kinds of questions because I myself have always wanted to have spaces where I could explore those kinds of things. And so for the better part of a decade, I supported people who were working to explore those kinds of questions, which 
meant that I was often going into spaces like atheist conferences and talking about the search for meaning and how we can have conversations across lines of religious difference, which again is a sort of large focus of my first book. But I had this moment a few years ago when I was speaking at an atheist conference and I was going through a, a really difficult series of events in my personal life around my sort of career, my personal relationships, all of the things that I felt like really sort of defined who I was as a person were, were changing or coming to an end. And I was feeling really lost and directionless. And I was invited by a friend to go to the, get a tarot reading. And I went into it thinking, you know, we were sort of thinking of it as a kind of joke and we were laughing on the way over. But when I sat down at the table, I realized that it wasn't a joke to me that I, you know, if the cards had said that things were going to continue to be difficult for me, that, you know, I, that would have been a very hard thing to hear. I needed in that moment, someone to tell me that things were going to be okay. And after that happened, and I was reflecting on it a bit, I realized how often I have done sort of similar things online, how often I have sort of gone into my digital life, thinking of it as a kind of a joke in a way, or at least not taking it super seriously, thinking of the internet as this kind of less real space where we just goof off or, or where we have interactions that don't really count, that aren't really meaningful. And yet how often, even though I've been thinking of my digital life consciously as this thing that I don't take seriously, if I actually look at what I was needing from the internet or, or the expectations and hopes I brought to it, I see something very different. So uh, the reason I ended up writing this book, which I was not expecting when I first started sort of working on this book, what it became is very different from what I was thinking when I first started. A big part of why is because for almost a decade, I worked with people who fall outside of religious categories as they have tried to sort of find meaning and belonging in their lives. And it's become super clear to me how big of a role the internet has played in that for so many people who are leaving the kinds of institutions in which we have historically wrestled with these kinds of questions, like the church that I joined when I was younger, and how for so many people now, the internet, this space that we have kind of absorbed this idea that it's less real or that it's not something we should take seriously, how large of a role that's playing in the imaginations of people who are trying to sift through the kinds of big questions that we've always tried to sift through. And so the book tries to understand how moving that work from these traditional institutions to digital space is changing the ways that we navigate those questions, which again is not, <laughs> not at all the book that I expected to write. And I think for some people who are maybe familiar with my first book, you know, they might not necessarily see the connection immediately. But I think in that story, and I, that's why I really appreciate you asking this as a kind of first question, because my hope is in that story, the connection or the through line is clear. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Chris Stedman. He's been on the show before to talk about his previous book, Faithiest, How an Atheist Found Common Ground with Religion. Today we're talking about his recent book, IRL, Finding Realness, Meaning, and Belonging in Our Digital Lives. I really like the answer that you just gave about why you were there with the tarot card and how it tied into a book that you hadn't really expected to write. I will say that when I picked up IRL, it wasn't the book that I was expecting to read. I was expecting a much more pedestrian kind of digital weird, digital bad, real <laughs> authenticity good kind of book. And there are a lot of books that have come out in the last 20 years that are on that theme. What I found instead was this complex meditation on what it means to be authentic, what it means to play roles in various parts of our society, what it means to be really engaging with all of these different opportunities to try on, and in some ways, I think at one point you say pretend up or play up into a different kind of role or a 
different kind of identity. As I was reading your book, one of the things that kept coming back to me again and again was David Bowie. And I was thinking about an interview that David Bowie had with Terry Gross, where he was talking about the fact that he he got up on the stage in glam because he felt that that reflected a certain amount of theatrics in his personality, and that he didn't feel that he could pull off the kind of work shirts and dungarees that some other performers were doing. And Terry Gross asked him, oh, so you, you thought that somehow the, the theater was more real? And David Bowie said, ah, I didn't say that the dungarees and the work shirts were more real, but rather they were a different type of role, and I didn't think that I could authentically pull off that type of role. As I'm saying this quotation from David Bowie, as I'm paraphrasing it, I just want to say that I heard a lot of that kind of reflection and deep meditation on public performance in your book. And I'd like to ask now kind of about that. And as listeners are beginning to learn about what you're writing about in IRL, it's not about how to be real, quote unquote, but how, if I'm reading it correctly, the various ways that we present ourselves are different ways of being real. Now, as I'm saying all this, am I hitting on anything? Am I grounding out in in ways that you are wanting to communicate or am I missing? Missing something and would you say it in a different way no no i think you've got it pretty spot on there i mean what i came to feel at the end of irl at the end of you know because this was really it was a several year process of reflecting researching reading reaching out to people and and doing a number of different interviews and i started working on this book because i was feeling really split between my digital life and the offline pieces of my life. And I was feeling like my digital self felt very sort of fractured. I felt like it was a a place where I couldn't bring certain pieces of myself to my digital life. And I wanted to understand that. And when I first started, I, you know, I came across the works of people who, as you've sort of alluded to, when it comes to discussions about digital life, we tend to hear a lot of extreme perspectives, either the very sort of negative takes on digital life, that it's a a fake space, a place that makes us more, more fake, more disconnected, more performative, or we, we hear this sort of opposite perspective that digital life is going to make us superhumans, more efficient, more connected. And I was feeling, if anything, I sort of leaned more in the, the pessimistic direction and what I came to recognize at the end of that process is that the internet actually sort of upends our conventions about what the real really is. And I think it, you know, it very much sort of aligns with what you're describing. It's not that there is this sort of authentic or true self that I am that I can't bring to digital space. It's that I've always been a composite of multiple selves that shows up differently in different spaces. The person I am right now in this conversation with you is not the same as the person that I am with my mother or with my best friend. And it's not that one of those selves is my sort of true self and the others are performance. It's that we're always performing a self in different spaces, but different spaces give us opportunities to bring out different pieces of ourselves. And this was something that really came through in the conversations that I had with people as I was researching and interviewing people for the book. I talked to a lot of people who have used the internet to express pieces of themselves that they have a difficult time bringing into other parts of their lives or to, as you say, sort of play or or practice a self that maybe has characteristics that they struggle to express in their day-to-day lives. And and it gives them a chance to live into that way of being and then maybe try to sort of integrate that into other parts of their life. So I think that digital life presents really immense challenges, I think. And we're really feeling that right now because we're in the early stages of this big cultural transition from a pre-digital age to a digital one. And so the challenges of that kind of shift are very pronounced and we don't know how to navigate them well yet. And I think one of the biggest challenges is what I've been describing, the fact that we have always been a composite of selves, but that feels really challenging right now because the person that you present online needs to somehow be acceptable to all of these different groups, all these different audiences. So my mom needs to be able to see my Twitter, as do my students, as do potential future employers. And so 
it's really easy when confronted with that challenge to try to flatten ourselves out to the safest version of ourselves online. You know, that's sort of one way that we can respond to this challenge. But I think there's another way, which is to embrace the contradictions that are sort of inherent to being human. The fact that we have always been multiple selves and that these selves sometimes contradict each other and to use the fact that we are presented with this reality as an opportunity to accept that reality. This is where I think the internet gives us a chance to really reapproach our very understanding of what the real self is and to see the different ways that we could live into more complex understanding of what the real self is. And that's that's why I, I actually, though I started this process feeling quite pessimistic about my digital life, I ended it feeling really hopeful, thinking that the internet actually gives us this new chance to reapproach these age-old questions, questions that have been central to my life, to religion, and, and the sort of ways that religions have tried to structure spaces, practices for people to reflect on their lives. I think the internet gives us a new chance to approach those things and see them in a new way. So I, I actually, though I, I <laughs> in many ways, I'm quite cynical at heart, or at least my impulse is to lean in the direction of pessimism. I've ended this process feeling more hopeful than I expected. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Chris Stedman. He's a writer, activist, and community organizer. We're talking about his recent book, IRL, Finding Realness, Meaning, and Belonging in Our Digital Lives. We'll be back in a moment. Each week here at Things Not Seen, we dive deep into the tough questions about culture and faith. Questions are a sign of growth, and it's way easier to hear the answers when others join in the asking. That's why I'm excited for our sponsor, BeADisciple.com. It's the social hub for all your spiritual quandaries. One click away at BeADisciple.com. Scroll through their affordable, ecumenical, accredited, short-term online courses, all taught by content experts. Here you'll be in the company of others where it's safe to discuss hard questions. If you have questions and are looking to grow, enroll in a course today and ask away at BeADisciple.com. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find nearly 10 years worth of interviews, all there for free for your listening pleasure. Our guest today is Chris Stedman. He's a writer, activist, and community organizer. He's been on the show before talking about his previous book, Faithiest, How an Atheist Found Common Ground with the Religious. Today we're talking about his recent book, IRL, Finding Realness, Meaning, and Belonging in Our Digital Lives. You make an interesting observation in your book, IRL. You say that this digital landscape that we're navigating is in some ways too new to really fully understand, and that we're still learning, and I'm paraphrasing here, we're still learning what our interaction with the internet and our interaction with social media is doing to us. And I'm wondering about the relationship between our rituals online and the rituals that you've studied in your religious studies, because in some ways these ancient rituals are being mimicked in our online performance and behavior, and in some ways they're being revolutionized. And I'd love to hear what you're thinking about both the comparison and the contrast between these ancient kind of habits and rituals and the new rituals that we're still barely understanding in our online lives. Yeah. Well, I argue in IRL that whatever you think of religion, and obviously, you know, my perspective on religion is probably different from yours, is probably different from, well, I think we all probably have our own very particular perspective on religion, even people who largely think they agree. But whatever you think of religion, the fact of the matter is religious traditions emerged over long periods of time 
and developed rituals, practices through trial and error that help people structure their lives and think through who they are and what their responsibility to the world around them is. My mom is theologically agnostic, but she loves going to church because she finds that after she does, she goes to a Lutheran church, she finds that after she does, she's much more likely to act in accordance with her values. It's this opportunity for her to check in with herself every week and challenge herself and to feel challenged by the community to really ask herself if she's living in the way that she aspires to. And of course, these institutions have wielded that power in ways that are really harmful. And that, you know, I think that almost goes without saying, but it's important to say. But there's also a lot of ways that that power has been harnessed for good. And I think the challenge with our digital rituals is that digital space is so new and this we've absorbed this idea that digital life is not real life, that I think we're not very aware of the ways that we use digital space to provide structure and ritual and practices for our lives. And you know, I talk in one of the final chapters of IRL about having OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder, which is something I've had for most of my life that I have learned a lot about. And OCD is a response to uncertainty. Not many people have OCD, only a small percentage of Americans have OCD, but all of us have a really difficult time with uncertainty. Humans are hardwired to resist uncertainty. OCD just happens to be a kind of maladaptive response to uncertainty where someone who has OCD develops rituals, practices to try to ward off that uncertainty. And while I I think, well, most people don't have OCD, I think all of us do create rituals to try to wrestle with the uncertainties of life, to learn to live with them, to deal with them. It's just that in OCD, those rituals are, are maladaptive, they're harmful, but I think we all do it. And the reason I talk about OCD in that chapter is because I, a big part of my of me learning to live with my OCD and part of how I've learned to address my OCD is by learning to become more aware of the rituals that I develop in response to uncertainty and whether or not those rituals are helping me or harming me. And so, you know, I have rituals that are helpful, like, you know, every day I text my mom and she and I have a relationship that helps me feel connected, helps me feel grounded. My mom and I have a really wonderful friendship. That's a helpful ritual. But then I have harmful rituals that are maybe like washing my hands too much or something like that. And so part of learning how to navigate my OCD has been learning the difference between those. And that requires bringing self-reflection and awareness to my life and my practices. And I think the challenge is because digital life is so new, we aren't really bringing a lot of self-awareness and reflection to our digital lives. So we're not really looking at our digital rituals, our digital habits as, and asking ourselves whether or not they are helping us or harming us, whether or not we are just trying to sort of mindlessly ward off uncertainty or whether or not we're engaging in practices that help us become more aware of ourselves and the world around us. And I identify in that same chapter what I think is the biggest obstacle to feeling more genuine, more real, more human online, which is the fact that these digital platforms that we increasingly use for really central, big, important parts of our lives are driven at the end of the day by the desire to make money. They are not public space, they're private space. And they are run by companies that are at the end of the day interested in making money. So they don't care what kind of experience we have online. They just care that we are online. And so if content that keeps us clicking and scrolling is inflammatory, is harmful, that's still a win to the companies. They don't care if it's making us more anxious, if it, if it just keeps us sort of mindlessly ritualizing our lives. Uh, they just care that we're online. And so I think 
we need systemic transformation at the end of the day. We, these platforms need to be held accountable and we need to ensure that they are ultimately serving the common good and not just private interests. But in the meantime, because that's going to be a really long road, we can work to bring more self-awareness to our digital lives and to the rituals that we develop that are so new and that don't have the benefit of religious traditions, rituals, which, as I said, have been time tested over long periods of time. And so though we can't transform the system overnight, we can transform our relationship to these platforms and to the ways that we use them and ask ourselves whether or not we are engaging in rituals that open us up or that close us off. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Chris Stedman. He's a writer, an activist, and a community organizer. He's been on Things Not Seen before to talk about his previous book, Faithiest, How an Atheist Found Common Ground with the Religious. Today we're talking about his recent book, IRL, Finding Realness, Meaning, and Belonging in Our Digital Lives. One of the things that fascinates me about the answer that you just gave is that you talked about how we are using rituals for stability. But one of the things that you also explore in your book IRL is communities that use rituals of instability. And I'm going to explain what I mean. You start the book IRL at a drag show. And for listeners who may be unfamiliar, we can talk about the fact that drag culture is an an intentional destabilization of and I'm going to scare quote here, sort of traditional gender roles where men take on the costume of the female and females take on costumes of males. And again, we can can debate kind of what those gender roles really mean. But I'm interested now to explore kind of how destabilization plays a role in these dynamics that you're talking about. Yeah. So as you say, I do open the book by talking about being at a drag show. And specifically, you know, I talk about how drag, I I think for someone who is not familiar with drag, the assumption might be that a drag performer's ultimate goal is to quote unquote pass, to move through the world without notice, to pass as someone of another gender. But actually drag is not about passing, not about integrating, but is about disrupting. It's about exaggerating, about performing gender in this sort of hyper-realized, exaggerated way that shines a light on the conventions and often pokes fun at the conventions that we hold about gender. And so drag is really about, as you say, disrupting. And I open at this drag show in part because I think online, when we come up against these digital pieces of life that feel exaggerated, that feel hyper-realized. And our reaction to that is to say, well, this is fake. I think we actually have a chance to look at it in a new light and to say, actually, the kind of exaggerations that we see online, we could see it as a, a kind of something akin to drag. It's, it's an exaggerated performance that gives us a chance to recognize the conventions that we have about what is the real self and who we really are. But more specifically, I opened the book, not just at, at any drag show, but, but specifically at an amateur night where performers who are just dipping their toes into the drag waters get their start. And so the people who were performing that night were brand new to drag. And though they were sort of all over the map in terms of how they performed, the one thing they had in common is none of them were quote unquote good at it yet. So there were people who were extremely confident, perhaps more confident than they should be, one could say, in their abilities. And then there were also people who were on the total opposite end and who who radiated insecurity or fear as new performers. But the one thing that they all had in common, besides simply being new to drag, is that they were thinking less, I could tell from their performances, that they were thinking less about rewarding the audience with a particular kind of performance, like the more seasoned drag performances I've been to, you know, they really have their routine down and they know what the audience is going to respond positively to. And and they give the audience often what they're looking for. Whereas on amateur night, these Queens were thinking less about that and more about what they wanted to say, what they wanted to express. 
they were through the trial and error of trying something new that they're not good at yet, they had an opportunity to try things that didn't work or make mistakes. And I think online, as we're all trying to sort of perform a self in digital space, we're all trying to do something that we're not good at yet, something that we're very new at and that we don't know how to do well. But I think in that process, we have a chance to learn things about ourselves and about who we are. I tell very briefly in that chapter, the story of going out for a sport in high school. My mom said that she wanted me to to try out for an athletic team. And prior to that, I had really stuck to the things that I was naturally good at. So things that had to do with books (laughs) um, or being creative, but uh, anything athletic, was, you know, something I ran away from, not toward. And so I decided to go out for the cross country running team thinking, you know, I'm, I'm horrible at running and I'm even worse at distance running. So there's no way this will work out. But uh, what I didn't realize is I actually, well, I thought I was self-sabotaging myself in, in a good way. I was actually self-sabotaging myself because what I didn't realize is everyone makes the cross-country team, no matter how bad you are. And so I ended up making the team, even though I was a terrible runner. But what I learned from being on the cross-country team is that, well, I learned a few things. One, that I actually really enjoyed running and that even though it wasn't something I was the best at, um, that I could still enjoy it just you know, for what it was. And I still, to this day, really enjoy running. And it's a something that really grounds me. But I also learned that you discover distinct things about yourself and about who you are from doing something that you're not good at yet, that really just sort of sticking to things that naturally come easy to you, barricades you off from learning and discovering really important pieces of who you are. And I think online, because none of us are good at being human in digital space yet, we actually have a lot of rich opportunities to discover things about ourselves that we can't in other spaces. And so I think that digital life disrupts our understanding of who we are in all kinds of really valuable ways, both by giving us a chance to do something we're not good at yet and by giving us a chance to be drag performers of ourselves in some ways, to perform versions of ourselves online that can sometimes feel exaggerated, but that gives us a chance to kind of shine a light on these conventions that we have about who we are or who we're supposed to be and re-examine them and, and maybe throw away the parts that don't help us feel like ourselves. What I really like about that, I, I, both in your answer and in reading this portion of your book, IRL, I was thinking about a friend who is a friend in real life, but also a friend on Facebook, and knowing the friend in real life and then seeing the very outsized kind of persona that this person puts forward on Facebook. Always, if they meet somebody famous, that's front and center, and you get very little of the downside. You get all of this kind of glamorous, globe-trotting upside. I asked them about that at one point, and they say, oh, that's just for the folks that we used to go to high school with. I'm dialing all that up to 11. And so (laughs) I want to think about that in terms of of the drag piece that you're talking about, the kind of experimenting with a new persona online and and accentuating aspects. But I also want to ask you about curation, the cutting away of certain negative parts. How does curation and that kind of editorializing play into this as well? Yeah. I mean, I think that curating a public facing self is not new. It's not a new phenomenon. I, you know, I, I think in the book, I compare it to like the family Christmas letter that doesn't mention dad's DUI. And, you know, and so we've always done that, but I do think that it is more difficult now. It's more insidious. And as more and more of who we are moves into digital space, a space that is driven by algorithms that sort of move us in certain directions and and not others, I think it's, it's important to become more aware of how we're curating and why we're curating And so I don't think we owe everyone every piece of information about our lives. In fact, I think it's really important to have parts of ourselves that are just for ourselves or just for a treasured circle of intimates. I write in IRL about going to this section of forest in northern Minnesota called the Lost Forty that is one of the oldest 
uh, has some of the oldest growth trees in North America. And the reason why those trees are there is because there was a mapping error and that piece of land was mapped as a lake instead of a forest. And so when loggers came through, they didn't log that part of the forest, which is what has allowed those trees to grow so old and so tall. And I do think we need to leave certain things off of our digital maps. I have this whole mapping metaphor in one chapter where I I draw parallels between the ways that we map our lives online and, and sort of publicly document our lives and the ways that cartographers map a physical terrain and what they choose to to include and, and what they don't and how that act of curation really reveals things about what the map maker and what the field of cartography sees as important, as worthy of mapping and, and to sort of draw a parallel to the ways we map our lives online and, and what that tells us about what we think is important and what makes us real, what makes us human. I think it's important to have things that you keep for yourself, but I think it's also, it's equally important to understand why you are or aren't sharing something. And the process of writing this book started for me in a sort of tumultuous moment in my life when I continued to post online as if it was sort of business as usual And that's totally fine if that's what I wanted to do. But the reason I was doing that is because I felt like there were parts of my life that I could not bring to my digital presentation, even if maybe I wanted to. And I wanted to understand why it was that certain things felt off limits. So I think that now on the other side of this process, there are still many things that I don't share online. But I do think that I have a better understanding of why I do include certain things and why I don't, and more awareness of what is sort of behind the curating that I do, which I think is is important for all of us. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Chris Stedman. He's an author, activist, and community organizer. We've talked to him before about his previous book, Faithiest, How an Atheist Found Common Ground with the Religious. Today, we're talking about his recent book, IRL, Finding Realness, Meaning, and Belonging in Our Digital Lives. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please consider going to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years worth of shows, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Today we're talking with Chris Stedman. He's an activist and community organizer who's been on our show before to discuss his previous book, Faithiest, How an Atheist Found Common Ground with the Religious. Today we're talking about his recent book, IRL, Finding Realness, Meaning, and Belonging in Our Digital Lives. Well, before the break, you talked about this curious phenomenon of mapping errors, where a map took an expanse of trees and listed it as a lake, and the loggers never went into that space because what they saw was the wrong thing on the map. And that gets me thinking about another theme that plays through parts of your book, IRL, and it's this notion of inking, tattooing. And I thought about that as I was reading that chapter on inking. I thought about the film Memento, which is a film about a person who has short-term memory loss and ends up putting tattoos on himself to remind himself of what the past was. But what we find out in the film and what you talk about in your book IRL is that even though these inkings, these tattoos are permanent, the self that was part of that experience of the inking or the meaning is not necessarily permanent. And I'd love to hear more about how things like maps of spaces and maps on our bodies change over time. Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you. I think the one thing that I really learned a lot from while working on IRL was, you know, I sort of sit in this 
in-between generation where I didn't grow up with the internet really integrated into all parts of my life as a child, but the internet was sort of present. So, you know, I have memories of biking to the library and logging onto the shared computer for 20 minutes before the timer expired and using the internet. Like that was how, if I wanted to get online, I'd have to go somewhere, log on, and then was this sort of discreet act. It wasn't until I was in my 20s that I had a smartphone and the internet started becoming really integrated into all parts of my day and more a sort of interwoven part of who I am and where I stand in the world than a sort of thing I stepped into and out of. And so one thing I learned a lot from while working on the book was talking to people who had very different experiences, both people who were older than me, for whom the internet sort of came into their lives later, and especially people who are younger than me, who grew up with the internet much more sort of integrated into their lives. I look at younger people with a lot of admiration because that feels very challenging to me. The idea that, you know, for a lot of these people, that the, the public mapping of their selves begins before they're even conscious of it. In the book, I talk about a piece that Taylor Lorenz wrote for The Atlantic on what happens when children discover that they have been, their lives have been documented on, online um, from a very young age. And for some children, that feels like a huge violation, like their story has been told without their consent, or it's been told by somebody else. They're not the author of their own story. Whereas for other children, it feels like this validation that they exist. And one of the children said, I'm paraphrasing here, but said, they're like, wow, I'm a real person because I am documented in, in this way. And yet even sort of once people take authorship of their own story and how they document it publicly, exactly as you say, the person that we are is always changing. And I look, as I said, with admiration at younger people who are publicly documenting their lives as they're going through these periods of their lives where, you know, who you are is really changing. It's not, it's not that who I am isn't still changing. I'm changing all the time, but especially when you're younger, those changes happen really quickly. And I write in IRL about the experience of getting my first tattoo when I turned 18 and it, it was a stalk of wheat and had a Bible verse on it. And how within just a couple of years of getting that tattoo, I no longer identified as a Christian because I was studying religion and I was challenged by my religion professors to ask myself what I believed and why. And through that process came out on the other side, um, recognizing that I, I wasn't a Christian. And I remember whenever someone would ask about that tattoo, feeling embarrassed or resentful of it, feeling like it betrayed to the world that I had changed and that there was something that that was a, a kind of failure in some way or something I needed to explain or justify. And I think we often feel that pressure as, you know, as we change that we need to justify why, why and how we've changed. And so initially I felt quite resentful of this tattoo, but eventually I came to embrace it as an opportunity for me to accept that that is part of what it means to be human is to change. And I think online, this is something that we're still really struggling with. The fact that we are presenting a self to the world that is forever changing and that we're creating this kind of digital ink, um, these digital tattoos, these digital maps of a self that's always changing. And so, you know, you can look back at something you posted 10 years ago and maybe feel embarrassed or cringe. Um, or, you know, maybe you can <laughs> look back at a book you published eight years ago. Uh, not naming any names here, but um, <laughs> no, it's a reference to my own book and see a different person who is still, you know, who you are and who you were then. But who you are now obviously has changed and shifted. And, and so, I think that there are a lot of challenges inherent to that. And yet, I also think, kind of like what I was saying earlier, it presents us with an opportunity to embrace this truth about what it means to be human, is that we are always works in progress, that we are always changing, that the self that I am inking onto the world through my digital output is always going to change. And sometimes I'm going to look back at things that I have shared or ways I have documented my life and feel 
embarrassed, but rather than responding to that by sort of deciding to share nothing or disowning or saying, you know, well, that's not really me, as I kind of tried to do with my tattoo initially, I think we we can respond another way and to say that, again, this is part of what it means to be a person and that, you know, and, and ultimately I, I ended up coming to a place with my tattoo where I felt glad that I had it. And I, I actually write about another tattoo, another one of my early tattoos, one I got actually shortly after I realized I wasn't a Christian of a capybara, which is a the world's largest rodent. And the reason I got that capybara tattoo is because I'd seen a television program about capybaras because I loved them. I thought they were very adorable. And the television program claimed something I've never been able to confirm through research. They claimed that the Catholic church considered the capybara to be a fish because missionaries went to South America, encountered the capybara, wrote back to Rome asking what it was. The Pope responded saying it was a fish because it spends half of its life in the water. And because of the doctrine of the infallibility of the Pope, the Catholic church still considers the capybara a fish, which was the what the television program had claimed. Again, I have not been able to confirm this at all. But I got that tattoo when I was sort of newly an atheist as a a way of rejecting that part of my journey, my story, um, my experiences in religion. And a few years ago, I decided to go back to that tattoo because it was just a simple outline of a capybara and not to kind of cover it up because my, my understanding of religion has shifted since then. And I think has, I've, my appreciation of religion has grown more complex, but I didn't want to cover up that part of my story. Instead, I wanted to add some detail to it to reflect my more detailed understanding of religion now. And so I still have the capybara tattoo, but it has all these extra details now that weren't there before. And I think we can go back to our, you know, the ways that we sort of ink our ourselves onto the world publicly over time and not delete them or pretend that they're not there, but maybe add some detail from the vantage point of where we stand in the future. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Chris Stedman. He's been on the show before to talk about his previous book, Faithiest, How an Atheist Found Common Ground with the Religious. Today we're talking about his recent book, IRL, Finding Realness, Meaning, and Belonging in Our Digital Lives. Well, we've been talking about your book, IRL, and the title indicates in real life. But I want to reflect on this notion of realness in light of a quotation that comes from a midpoint in your book, IRL, from an author by the name of Sherry Turkle, who wrote a book called Life on the Screen. Turkle writes, what relation do these different identities have to the whole person? And so I want to invite you to reflect with me on the relationship between realness and wholeness, which is more important and which is more valuable? Hmm. That's a great question. I mean, to me, and this is just sort of my, my gut response here, but to me, though, they're inseparable. You know, what makes me feel real is feeling integrated. So in that quote, I believe Turkle is talking about the ways that people play with identity online and how people will sort of construct these digital personas. And she's asking, what is the sort of relationship between that digital persona and the sort of whole person the rest of their life? And suggesting that there's often a kind of split there, that it's this sort of separate self that exists apart from the rest of someone's life. And I think we do sometimes silo off different parts of ourselves. And I think that that can lead to us feeling disintegrated. But integration doesn't necessarily mean that I don't have separate spaces where I can bring different parts of myself to the forefront. Again, as I was saying earlier, you know, the the person that I am in my relationship with my mother, someone who has known me from the moment that I was born, who has known me in ways that no other person ever will. That is a, a particular sort of safe space, if you will, where I can be myself in ways that I can't in other parts of my life. And that doesn't mean that I need to sort of bring that same self into every other part of my life in order to be real. It, um, 
but if I want to feel whole, I need to have different spaces where I can tend to different parts of myself. And so in IRL, I talked to a lot of people and I, I was very fortunate to have people who were willing to educate me, to share their stories with me and to trust me with sharing their stories in the book, who talked to me about turning to digital spaces where they can create a, a kind of a persona of some sort. And that has given them an opportunity to express parts of themselves that maybe it's not safe for them to in other parts of their lives. And that that helps them feel whole. And so I think there's this idea that having a self that is siloed in certain ways means that we're not whole, that we're not integrated. But I actually think that it can be um, essential often for feeling, for feeling whole. And I make the comparison at one point in the book to this LGBT drop-in center that I used to go to when I was a teenager. So I, you know, I started coming out when I was 13 in a moment and a, and a geographical location where there were no other out LGBT people around me, no one that I saw who I could connect with. And so, I, and honestly, you know, I, I share this in the book too. The first people I ever came out to were digital strangers. And so I have that experience digitally, but I talk about going to this LGBT drop-in center where I could be around other LGBT people for one night a week. And in many ways, it was this sort of space that was completely disconnected from every other part of my life, somewhat similar to kind of what Turkle is talking about with these digital personas that are not connected at all to the other parts of the person who's created its life. You know, and I think people can look at that kind of thing as a kind of escape, escape from reality. It is an escape in the sense that it's, it's escaping a world that has constrained the person's ability to feel like they can be themselves. And so I had this drop-in center I could go to one night a week where I could let down my guard, you know, sort of loosen my shoulders from having to move through a world where I always had to be on guard and aware of whether or not people knew that I was LGBT and whether or not it was a safe place for me. And I could, one night a week, I could spend time in this space that again, was cut off from every other part of my life. The people who knew me there didn't know me in other part of, any other part of my life and didn't know anyone else in my life. And yet I needed that space to be able to feel whole. To, so again, I don't think integration, I don't think realness means that every sort of piece of who we are is showing up in the same exact way in in the same exact space. I think being a self is a constellation of different characteristics, different facets, and that feeling whole means get to tend to all these different parts of yourself and all the different ways that you need to be able to be a person. And, and again, I think at the beginning of this process, and this is a, it's a perspective that's kind of known as digital dualism, this idea that life online and the people that we are online are fundamentally different and separate from who we are offline. And I think I, I was much more sympathetic to that perspective when I started working on the book. I was feeling split and siloed in a bad way. But I think I've come to recognize and appreciate that this is, again, a need that we've always had. And it's, and it's important to be able, and that the internet pre presents all kinds of new ways of tending to the different parts of ourselves that we have. And that might not look like, the thing about a big cultural shift is that it's not going to look like what it once was. And there is loss in that. You know, I think this year, especially when we've had to move so many big parts of our lives online due to the pandemic, you feel the losses, you know, acutely. And it's not that life online is exactly the same as life on offline. But in that swirl of change, there is loss, but there is also gain. And I think we have gained the ability to better tend to the different parts of who we are in order to feel more whole, um, or at least that's one thing that the internet has provided me. So my final question to you, and I'm going to, I'm going to start in one place and pivot to another place. And let, <laughs> let's see where this goes. So Sounds good. when I'm on my email program, if I scroll my cursor, my mouse down the list of contacts that I have, and I mouse over the contact that was the email address of my mother who passed away in 2009, her face pops up. If I go onto Facebook, 
I can find several friends who have passed away, but their Facebook presences are tended and curated by a group of friends who remember them and mourn them and come back at various anniversaries and say, I miss you. Uh, You write at the end of your book, IRL, about a caregiver of your own who you're watching sort of disappear into Alzheimer's and dementia. And so my initial thought was to ask you a question about what we owe to the integrity of those that we've lost or we're losing, those who are disintegrated due to death or who are disintegrating because their personality is no longer kind of in the static place that we thought it was. But that made me realize I really want to ask this question about everybody. We've been talking about our own digital integrity, but what do we owe to others online? What is the obligation that we have to the integrity and to the the care and the curation and the nurturing and the flourishing of others that we encounter when we're interacting in these digital spaces? Yeah. I mean, I think the danger of digital life right now on the internet that we have as it currently exists, which again is sort of driven first and foremost by the priorities of profit. I think the danger of that is that it can move us in ever more atomized directions to see ourselves as ever more individual, as islands that exist, that sort of bump into each other. That is the story that we have told ourselves, those of us like me who have moved out of these kind of traditional institutions that provide unifying stories and identities that tie us to one another, again, in ways that can be really harmful, like the kind of tribalism that we see crop up between religious groups. But religious traditions have often sort of bound us to communities of others to help us see ourselves as a part of a larger whole. I think the story many of us who have left those institutions have told ourselves is that we have left those institutions to go on a kind of individual journey, often online, to meet those needs, the need for belonging, the need for meaning, for connection. But I think the the danger is that the swept up in these sort of digital currents and these algorithms, we can come to see ourselves as more and more individual at the exact moment when more than ever, we need to see ourselves as being a part of a greater whole, as being accountable to others, as being connected, especially given the immensity of the challenges that we face at this moment in history, from climate change to COVID-19, to the sort of disintegration of truth, of of what what is real, what is true, that we see often online. And so I think, you know, this is the the challenge that we face. But I, in one chapter of IRL, I talk all about distance and how digital tools can either drive us apart and help us put distance between ourselves and others and between our understanding of who we are as being sort of individual or or belonging to a greater whole. But it can also help us close distances that that we never would have been able to close before. And again, so much of that comes down to how we use it. And so my hope for the book is that it's a it, it's a tool that can help people bring a little bit more awareness to the way that they show up in digital space, both in terms of their own sort of understanding of who they are, but also their understanding of where they belong in the world. I teach a class right now on vocation and the search for meaning, and um, I teach at a Lutheran institution and vocation is a very hot word in Lutheran spaces. And and maybe it's because I also am a product of Lutheran higher ed education, but I really love the idea of vocation because vocation is about discerning where the intersection is between what you believe about the world, what your passions are, what your skills are, where that intersects with what the world needs and how you can sort of bring those skills, those passions to the service of the world, to serving others. And so it's a, it's a lens that asks you and challenges you to think about the way that you live and the way that you tend to your own passions and your own skills in light of the needs of others and the need of the world. And so the class I teach is all about giving students a chance to think through that. And again, I think that the ways that we sort of ritualize our lives right now and the way digital platforms sort of move us in various directions, they're not moving us in the direction of thinking about ourselves in light of where, of of being a part of this greater whole. But I also think that they can 
do that. And I don't think we have to settle for the internet that we have right now, nor do I think we should. I think we should be pushing to improve our own experience of the internet, as well as pushing for sort of collective transformation of the platforms themselves. And I think, as you say, we have a responsibility not only to ourselves online, but we have a responsibility to the way that these platforms are impacting all of us. And so, I, you know, I talk in IRL about the fact that not everyone is going to be as online as me. And um, in fact, I envy some people who are, who are less online, for sure. But we exist in a world where the internet has huge implications for all of us. It doesn't matter how online or offline you yourself are. You know, you exist in a world where this is radically changing the way that we connect, that we understand what is true and what is real. And so we have a responsibility to one another to try to improve how the internet is impacting our understanding of what it means to be human. A couple of years ago, I wrote a piece for Vice about the growing number of young white men who are atheists and who are sort of moving from virtual atheist communities into the alt-right, into white supremacist movements, and how these white supremacist movements particularly target people who are disconnected, who are turning to the internet for a sense of belonging, a sense of identity, and who are disconnected from institutions and are, are sort of trying to target them and recruit them. And how, you know, we have a responsibility to provide other narratives for these people. And likewise, I think people are, you know, there's no going back. There's no putting the internet in its back in its box. I mean, this is the world that we live in now. And if anything, the internet is going to become ever more a part of our lives in really big and important ways, as we've seen, I think, especially in 2020. And so... The question is, what kind of internet do we want? Do we want an internet that helps us truly feel more connected and more like we're a part of a bigger whole? Or do we want an internet that allows people to atomize and to see themselves as individual islands? And I think it's really clear that there are huge consequences to the latter. So whatever you think of your own relationship to the internet, I think it's really, really, really important that we take the internet seriously. That doesn't mean we don't use the internet to, to play, to experiment. In fact, I think that is taking it seriously. But I think we need to see it as a real place where things of consequence happen. And that's my hope for the book, I think. Well, Chris Stedman, I was deeply moved by your book, IRL. It's honest, it's complex, and I'm really glad that you took the time. You say it took about five years to write. I'm really glad that you took the time to write it. But also, thank you for taking the time to talk to me and my listeners about it today. Oh, well, thanks for reading it. And thank you for the kind words. Um, but also, thanks for your time today as well. I, I have to say, when you put out a book, you have a lot of different conversations about it. And you get a lot of the same questions. And I definitely can't say that about this conversation. I really appreciate that we got to explore new ground for me, even as we talked. And so I'm, I'm very, very grateful for that. Thank you. Thank you. Chris Stedman is an activist and community organizer who has written for The Guardian, The Atlantic, Pitchfork, BuzzFeed, and Vice, and he's appeared on CNN, MSNBC, and PBS. He was the founding executive director of the Yale Humanist Community and is now a fellow of Augsburg University in Minneapolis, Minnesota. His first book was Faithiest, How an Atheist Found Common Ground with the Religious, and we talked to him about that book here on Things Not Seen. Today we've been discussing his recent book, IRL, Finding Realness, Meaning, and belonging in our digital lives. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Kija. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. 
You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash things not seen radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us. <laughs>